ha, ha, ha. Use the comment section and write ha, ha, or put a, what do you call that, emoji, all right? <laughs> okay, you know, uh, five years ago when we planted this church, uh, I have to be really honest with you today, five years ago when we planted this church, let me put this on here, there we go, um, I, I, did, I loathed social media and uh, Facebook and all of that. And it came to, I came to the realization that if you're going to plant a church, you better use social media or your church is going to die. And uh, so we've used social media and fairly effectively um, over the last five years. Good for ads and uh, let people know we exist because we have no building, we have no office, we don't have any of those things. And uh, we had quite the incident on social media uh, this week, we had an individual who, wow, really aggressive and hostile and all kinds of things, and so we had to take steps there. And then, uh, of course, because of the pandemic, we do registration online, and lo and behold, I saw this guy's name, no last name, but his first name registered for this morning. Oh, no. So kicked into high gear and, you know, it, you know, warned certain people, warned the theater and told our board and everything. And I said, oh, watch out. There could be fireworks today if this dude comes, you know. And uh, so he left his cell phone number, interestingly enough. So I contacted the individual. He finally got back to me. It's the wrong guy. <laughs> so, so the person who's here is safe. And, you know, he's not the, so it was just interesting, <laughs> the social media uh, story. And so uh, happy that, uh, that it turned out okay today. All right. And um, good to be with you and good to be with you online as well. You know, Omar, I discovered that, okay, I can read it. All right, good. We've turned the lights off in here so that we can uh, see the screen, but it's okay. I can read my Bible even though I'm an old guy. I can read it, so we're good. No, it's good. And uh, if online, if the image uh, is too bright, too soft, whatever, send us a message uh, so that we can make corrections and, as usual, sound and all that. If there's issues, glitches, pops, mutes, all these things let us know. If the camera dies, we have a solution for that. So let us know. We're all We're all equipped here, okay? Uh, uh, so let me give you a few announcements. Uh, my tech, if we'll jump to slide three, if you can do that, I'm going to mess you up today. Um, we are going to meet again uh, July the 4th. We meet every Sunday now, uh, but I do tell you so that you do register. We have to keep registering uh, online for contact tracing for the time being. Now, Quebec, most of Quebec turns green tomorrow, and so maybe uh, that'll stop. So we'll see, but we're going to you know, follow the rules as long as we need to do that. And uh, also, uh, parents, let me correct this mic a little. That might be better for you. Yeah, that's better for you. Um, parents, uh, remember the website, makingthebiblecomealive.com. Good for your, your children in the home. We continue the search for a part-time children's ministry uh, leader. We are getting warmer and may be able to, uh, to make a decision on that fairly shortly. But uh, just sit tight, and we are working on something to have a little kids program in the middle of July. We'll send out details uh, when they are ready, okay? Uh, remember to keep watching The Chosen. I tell the adults that, but really it's good for the whole family. I talked to someone this morning and, uh, who's here, and, and she said, I watched the whole season one last night, <laughs> and it's that good. 
Uh, it's that binge-worthy. Uh, they've started season two. They're into episode six now, which was just released on Wednesday. I watched it. It was outstanding. And it seems to be getting better and better. Let me just challenge you, uh, you know, Christians in the room, Christians who are online. If you're looking for an excuse to tell your uh, you know, non-Christian friends about what you believe, this is a great excuse. You can do so without embarrassment. This is not cheesy Christian television or Christian movies with bad, you know, bad acting and bad production and bad special effects or anything like that. It is outstanding. And uh, this week, the episode with the healing in the healing in the temple with the guy's hand getting, oh my goodness, it was so well done. Excellent. So I could go on a rant about that, but I, I just tell you to watch it. It's free. It's an app you download. Uh, we will have... Uh, Don Mann and Marie-José back on the 11th of July. Thank you for, uh, for receiving them so well. A couple of weeks ago, they will come back July the 11th. Pray for Michel and Louis Charbonneau, our, our workers in uh, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and as well for E.J. Toupe, who spoke last week from, uh, from Toronto and uh, did a great job. You can uh, watch, listen online. Uh, just to let you know, if you if you know watching videos and all that is too troublesome and you don't want to log into anything and you just want to listen, we are on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So easy, it's just the sermon, and you, it'll it'll get right to your uh, your inbox. You'll get a notification and all of that. Okay, so we've just got uh, hooked into Spotify uh, this week, and uh, those of you who want to give. Uh, where are you? Okay, Amber is ready. We're going to do the first in-person circulation of the basket offering since the pandemic began. Whoa, I'm telling you, that's big news. So Amber is going to circulate the basket there. If you want to give, just put something in. You don't have to come to the table at the end. Unless you want to use electronics, uh, we'll have somebody at the table to handle uh, your, your, your plastic if you want to give using electronics. You can also give online uh, using our website. But it's the first time we're circulating a basket. And also, uh, we have coffee and tea today. So we take a big step of faith today, okay? The offering and the coffee and the tea, okay? If you need any help with that, we, uh, Kimmy will help you over at the front here. You online, you don't have our coffee and tea, but you have your own, hopefully, all right? Uh, so today we're continuing our series on the book of Hebrews. The title of this is Losing My Religion. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the individual who, who we had the, the sort of big drama with online, uh, it, it was a real argument about faith. And um, who knows, maybe he's listening. If he is, uh, certainly welcome to, to observe and to listen. But wow, what a clash of beliefs and of faith systems uh, that got somewhat aggressive there. When we read the book of Hebrews, we're talking about a letter uh, to uh, perhaps a large group or a small group of Jewish people who came to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. And they had all kinds of interesting problems uh, as they endeavored to do that. And so you see in the book of Hebrews everything from encouragement to warning, strong warning, uh, back to encouragement, to you know, trying to teach about who Jesus is and trying to tell these people to persevere and so on because it wasn't always easy for them uh, when uh, they started coming to faith. The first lot of people who came to faith in Christ 
were, of course, Jewish people, and then it spread to the Gentile world. So they had their own particular challenges, and it's a tough book to interpret because you have to jump back in time and get in their head to understand what they're dealing with, all right? And there's a lot of um, religious terms in there and a lot of things having to do with, with their uh, background. And uh, so you have to put yourself back in their shoes. So today we're going to spin it a little bit, and I want to talk about uh, Quebec's most popular word as we look at this series uh, in the book of Hebrews, all right? Um, for some, the most popular word in Quebec is go Habs go, or Habs, or les habitants, or whatever you want to say, because for the first time in three decades, they're going to the Stanley Cup Finals. I hear a couple of woo-hoos in the room, but I don't hear anything online, so you can woo-hoo online or put a bleu blanc rouge online or something, but that's big news. I mean, the last time these folks won, that was the year that, that my wife and I got married, okay? That was like 27, 28 years ago, like three decades. So it's a long, long time. So that's, a, that's popular here in Quebec uh, today. I love this picture, the agony of defeat as the goalie puts his face down when that final puck went in the net in overtime uh, back uh, this week, all right? Great shot there. So, uh, but that's not the most popular word in Quebec. Uh, the most popular word that's used in Quebec culture is a religious word. It's an intensely religious word. It's a very specific religious word. And I don't think a lot of people in Quebec have a clue what they're referring to when they use it. Uh, they use it as a kind of a cuss word, uh, to be honest. And you've probably heard it if you've talked with people, especially in French. But it is an intensely religious word, this word. But again, I don't know that people know what they're talking about when they use it. But I, I put a, a picture on your screen that is the word that is the most popular word in Quebec, and it has been for a long, long time. Uh, we have a very odd situation in Quebec uh, compared to the rest of Canada, because Quebec has a history of dominance and control by uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And in the 1960s started what some call the Quiet Revolution, where people uh, basically put their fist in the air and said no more, and there was this kind of pushback against the Roman Catholic Church. Now, we don't understand that today, especially young people. We don't get what it was like, but you're talking about the type of control where the, where the Roman Catholic Church, and I mean no disrespect, I'm just talking about history, they literally controlled the amount of children that you could have. Uh, they controlled the politics. They had a lot of money, a lot of power. This is why you see so many ornate, gorgeous uh, Roman Catholic churches in the province of Quebec. And now the struggle with those churches is to actually keep them going and to maintain them because they're emptying out, again, as a result of a generation, uh, more than a generation now uh, since the, the quiet, so-called quiet revolution. That's why a lot of uh, couples, for example, in Quebec do not get married. It is a kind of a pushback against the Roman Catholic control and organized religion and so on. And so what you find in Quebec, and you don't find this in British Columbia or Manitoba or Alberta or even Ontario, you don't find this, but in Quebec you find it, a lot of the 
of the cuss words, if I can use that term, are, are related to religion, in particular related to what they understood and what they were taught. Uh, but those terms, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are right out of the pages of Scripture. It's remarkable. And so when I talk to, to people who use that type of language, I always turn it on them and I say, wow, you know, what does the, what does the chalice that Jesus allegedly drank out of have to do with this conversation? And they say, what? What do you mean? I said, well, you just use that word. <laughs> you know, it, that's what it means. And I remember uh, one conversation, a guy, uh, they used the, the term in French for Calvary. You know what Calvary is, right? Calvary is where Jesus was brutally executed. And so they used that term. And I said, I said wow, have you been there? <laughs> they, what do you mean, have you been there? I said, well, you just used the word. Do you know what that word means? They don't know what it means. And so a lot of times they just, they just kind of say it and they don't know. So you can start up a good conversation with that way. Uh, but this is the most popular, I think anyway, word. And this is right out of the book of Hebrews in the Bible's New Testament. In fact, it is all over the place in the first few books of the Bible. This is the tabernacle from the Old Testament. And this is uh, the most popular word in, in Quebec culture. Again, I don't know that they know that they're alluding to it, but they are. And there is a whole bunch of stuff that we can learn from uh, Hebrews chapter 9, when we look at this word uh, and play on the fact that it's used in Quebec culture. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read um, out of Hebrews chapter 9, and actually the back, of, the back end of Hebrews chapter 8 into chapter 9. I'm going to show you some pictures at the same time and give you a feel for what's going on. Uh, this shot is actually from a life-size reproduction of the Old Testament uh, tabernacle in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in the United States. And my family, we've been there several times. We took a church group there, I think once, maybe twice. And uh, that's the closest location to us where you can go and be in a life-size reproduction of at least a chunk of the Old Testament tabernacle. And the shot you're looking at there is actually of a, of a little information center slash store. There's a little passage that you see uh, kind of on the right side of the screen. And then it moves into the structure on the right side, which is actually a reproduction of the tabernacle, okay? Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read from uh, Hebrews chapter eight um, from verse 13. And uh, read a little bit here up to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. Uh, by calling this covenant new, speaking of the new covenant, in the person of Jesus and his, specifically his death and resurrection, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And the first covenant has, in its whole setup, worship in the tabernacle and then uh, when it was constructed the temple and then the uh, then the temple that had to be reconstructed and enlarged so that was the worship system under the old covenant here the author says by calling the something the new covenant he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear it's a curious verse 
because this was written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And it seems to imply that maybe that temple will no longer be needed. And lo and behold, maybe, maybe 30 years after this was written, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and has never since been rebuilt. There's only a retaining wall that's left there that people go and, uh, and pray at. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. I'm showing you the outer court here, uh, which is, uh, which is uh, over here. You see that kind of outside of that tent, that, that would be a reproduction of the outer court. Sorry to my tech, I'm jumping around a little bit here. Um, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up um, in its first room. Here's another shot of the guys doing their job there outside in the outer court of the tabernacle. And that's an altar where they're, you know, this is a reproduction, but they're preparing probably a sacrifice of some sort of animal. There's a wash basin there. You see, all of this stuff is outlined in immense detail in uh, Exodus and Leviticus. You will see all of this detail about how the tabernacle was to be constructed, how the worship system was to go, and all of this stuff. It's extremely detailed. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. That's inside the place in, in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And on the sides, you can actually see seats where they do tours there and they explain the whole worship system and the sacrifice that would be made and the operation of the temple priests. The, you see a little a priest there. He's a robot and he kind of slides on the ground and all this. It's a really powerful presentation. If you're ever in the area, it's Amish country there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, about 12 hours drive from here. In its first room were the, the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Uh, behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. The second curtain is behind uh, where you see that priest there, which had the golden altar of incense and the golden covered ark of the covenant. I'll show you that in a moment. This ark contained the gold jar of manna. Aaron's staff that had budded, that's a miracle from the Old Testament, and the stone tablets of the covenant where the law was written by Moses. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in details right now, so says the author. When you go past that curtain there, they kind of take you into, you don't get to go in the room, you get to look at it through a window. It's very small. Again, this life-size replica. That's the Ark of the Covenant that I just read about. And the cherubim, which is a type of angel mentioned in the Bible, on the top of the cover. And inside of that box, you have the various things that are listed there. Aaron's staff that butted and so on. It's quite, um, when you see it and you just look through the glass, it's really quite moving uh, to, to see. So... Um, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests, uh, they entered regularly into the outer room, again, which you see here, to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, the one that 
this one here. This is the inner room, okay? Only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. And uh, never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that the people had committed in ignorance. So says the author. Serious, serious stuff. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place, that little tiny room that's blocked year-round except by the high priest who enters, enters with a very special sacrifice and then he comes out. There's a story that he used to go in with a rope on his leg so that if he went in and died or something happened, he was taking too long, they would pull him out. Uh, it was very, very serious business. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was standing. Implication, the only way to get in for everybody, the only way to access the so-called most holy place would be for the whole worship system to no longer be in place and something new to come in place. This is what he's, the author is claiming the Holy Spirit was showing by this for hundreds of years that the way to the most holy place by the common person was blocked. As long as you had that, temp, that temple or tabernacle, it was blocked and no one could get in except that one high priest once a year and very serious business. This is an illustration for the present time, first century writing, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying till the time of the new order. So what he's, what he's saying there is all of this had its place and its time, but it was there to show us that we cannot access, access the, the most holy place. Um, in other words, a, a relationship, a personal relationship with God without boundary unless that first worship system comes down somehow, the new order would come, a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. So I want to give you some insight about this tabernacle for us today. Uh, when we understand the past, and we have to do that, some people say, well, why read the Old Testament, why do we have to, I mean, you know, talk about a, a crazy book, you know, the, the book of Leviticus, or, uh, you know, even some stuff in Deuteronomy. Um, I was on a, a, a Facebook post, I'm part of a, a group of pastors, about 800, 900 pastors across Canada, and one of them posted a funny, uh, a funny text out of the book of Deuteronomy. You know, there's a rule in the book of Deuteronomy that if you have two, two men who are fighting and, um, and the wife gets involved in the fight, a bit like the World Wrestling Federation kind of thing, you know, WWF or whatever, WWE special, you got these two guys fighting and the wife comes in and gets in the fight. And this is the, this is the rule in the, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy. And if she grabs one, the, the guy by his 
then it says, show her no mercy and take her hand off. Crazy rule. But when you understand, again, this is the, this is the Old Testament. This is back in where you've got a half a million people or maybe more out in the desert. And, you know, very, very different time, culture, and place. And so you say, well, why do we need to read this stuff? I mean, this stuff, some of this stuff is illegal. Some of this stuff is so incredibly, you know, a chauvinistic, misogynistic, like, uh, what is this? What is this crazy culture and time and place that we're reading about in some of these things in the Old Testament? Why do we need to read it? Because we need to understand the past. You need to understand what it was like for these people in order to approach God somewhat, in order to be forgiven for their sins, in order to be in right standing with God, there was an elaborate system of worship. And that tabernacle, which soon became, uh, well, which later became a temple, was part of that system. That system is gone. There's no more tabernacle. There's no more temple. There's no more system of animal sacrifices and so on. The, the, you try and follow the 600 some odd laws in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Number one, some of them, if you follow them, you'll get arrested. <laughs> Number two, there is, many of them are virtually impossible to follow today. There's nobody who can keep all those things. That's why they're there, because we need to understand the past and interpret the past. When we do that, we can appreciate the present. We live in the time of the new covenant. The way that we relate to God is so much better than what these people had for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, verse 11 of Hebrews 9, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So much better. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, there you see Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father mentioned in concert there, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. It's amazing. When you understand the past, you can appreciate the present. These people for hundreds of years lived under a system that maybe on the outside would make them ceremonially clean as per their whole setup and their whole law. But it could not cleanse the conscience, the author says. It could not do away with the repeated problem 
of the power of sin in a person's life. It could not clear their conscience. It could simply clear them for a certain amount of time outwardly so that they were accepted in that camp and in that culture and so on. But it was not good enough, the author uh, is saying. In the case of a will, um, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll say, uh, I'll back up verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Hmm. In the case of a will, he says, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Some of you have been through that where you have to prove, you have to have a death certificate in order for the will to be enacted. It's not in force until the person has died. It never takes effect while the person's living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood, so the author says. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to the people, he took the blood of animals and uh, he took water and scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and he sprinkled the scroll on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. Now, just as an aside, you'll recall that when Jesus uh, uh, had the last supper with, with the, the disciples, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. As they took the cup together, an obvious reference to uh, Moses and saying that what he's bringing in is even better. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood both on the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything has to be cleansed by blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Serious, serious business. For hundreds and hundreds of years, this is the way that they operated. And the author is saying, my, my goodness, now we have Jesus, now we have the present, now our consciences even can be cleansed. We no longer live under this law which was inefficient, which uh, merely was, was uh, dealt with the outward person, but could not deal with their heart. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, you see. Now to appear for us in God's presence. Not a physical temple or holy of holies like this, but the actual literal presence of God he entered on our behalf. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. So back in that time, every year, the high priest would go in there one time and do that very, very special sacrifice on behalf of his own sins and the sins of the people. If that were the case, the author says Christ would have to suffer many times since the beginning of the world. But he has appeared once once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. When you understand the past, you appreciate the present. And the same is true in life. Same is true in your own life. The decisions that you make, if you don't 
learn from them. If you don't uh, study them and study the consequences of them and sort of uh, review, you will make the same mistakes over and over again. You will continue to repeat the same behavior over and over again. But when you understand the past, you understand the decisions that were made, you begin to appreciate the present. It's amazing when you gain perspective. And that's what we have to do when we read you know, a passage like this or when we approach the Bible, especially the Old Testament. We have to learn why is it there? What can we understand and what can we now appreciate as a result? So we pause for a second then just to answer the question, why did Jesus die? Uh, when I, when I use this, I, I'm speaking of the word atonement because this is what this chapter is all about. Why then did Jesus die? And you say, well, he died for our sins. Okay, but do you understand what that means? Do you, have you picked that apart so that you can actually appreciate the present? Uh, there are some, some things I put on the screen there, several different views uh, that I want to put before you so that you understand uh, the right way. Uh, on the left side of your screen there, you've got what are still some very, very popular views as to why Jesus died. Um, there's about six or seven different versions of, of you know, ex explanation as to why Jesus died. Uh, the ones on the left are probably the most popular that I have seen. They still float around in many churches today, in many books, uh, many authors and all of this stuff. Uh, and, and a lot of people in the church have this perception uh, as to why Jesus died. The, view number one, the martyr theory. And that is that, well, when Jesus died on the cross, he was a martyr. So he, he lived a certain way, he taught certain things, and those things were too radical to be accepted by the people back then, and so they put him to death uh, for what he believed and for what he taught. And so in that sense, he is a martyr for those things, and he's like the first martyr of Christianity, again, because the people couldn't take it, and so they executed him, and so that's why he died. Uh, well, when you understand the past and you understand that Old Testament and that whole tabernacle system and temple system, uh, that's not why they killed those animals. That's not why they uh, put, their, put the blood in a special way in that most holy place. The reason why they did that was not to make that animal a martyr. The reason why they did that was to pay for the sins of the people. So, but it's a popular theory. Another theory is, is the victor theory. Uh, we call this uh, uh, Christus, Christus Victus, I think, uh, or, or Christ the victor. And it's this idea that when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated uh, the devil and um, he, he conquered him and defeated him. Now, this does have some foundation in Scripture for sure. We see the uh, book of Colossians uh, speaking of the death of Christ. He disarmed the powers and principalities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Wow, that's a pretty clear reference. First John, the reason why the Son of God came was to destroy the devil's work. Pretty good reference. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, uh, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and you will crush his heel uh, or uh, uh, bite his heel and he will crush your head. Well, it's an interesting reference to what could be the cross there. So there is some truth to this victor thing. 
But this is not why for hundreds and hundreds of years, that wasn't the principal reason why these animals were, were sacrificed in this Old Testament forgiveness system. They, they were sacrificed to pay for the sins of the people. So the victor theory is very uh, small part of uh, why Jesus died on the cross. And then there's the ransom to Satan uh, theory. That's very popular still. I'm surprised that it is, but it's still popular. And it's this idea that, that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid a, a ransom to Satan uh, to buy back the people from Satan because he had them has us all under his clutches, and so we have to pay him. Uh, we can't pay him, so Jesus comes and he pays him, and he conquers Satan that way. You don't really see any foundation for that in the Scripture, and uh, it certainly gives the, the devil an awful lot of power, awful lot of credit. Uh, just a bit of humor here. Have you heard about the exorcism that took place in Home Depot? Any of you hear of this? Okay, so in the United States... Uh, this took place uh, quite recently, and the police were called to break up an exorcism in the lumber aisle of a Home Depot in the U.S. Happened to be in Pennsylvania, we referred to Pennsylvania before, and the article is quite amusing uh, from Global News. A word of warning to anyone building a deck in Pennsylvania, your lumber might be possessed by a demon. And if it is, you can blame the meddling local police. Authorities busted up an attempted exorcism in the timber aisle of a Home Depot in Dixon City, Pennsylvania. On Monday, this would be last Monday, according to a bizarre line included in the police department's daily crime blotter on Facebook. <laughs> Dixon City officers showed up at the Home Depot around 3.30 p.m. on Monday for a call about disorderly people at the store, according to the blotter. Two individuals were, quote, having an exorcism in the lumber aisle for the dead trees, police wrote. Uh, the would-be exorcists were two men dressed in black, according to Dixon City Police Chief William uh, Belinsky. Both men were chanting and moaning in the lumber aisle and looked like they were trying to do an exorcism. Belinsky told the Scranton Times Tribune uh, newspaper. Another officer told the Philly Voice, uh, another uh, newspaper, that it was a seance type of thing for the dead. <laughs> the humans were escorted out of the building. This is the article uh, speaking here, but it's unclear if the alleged evil spirits were escorted back to hell. There is no indication that the exorcism had anything to do with the recent drop in the price of lumber. That's a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that. Staff at the store declined to comment. Authorities did not say why the men thought the wood might be possessed. No humans uh, or, or, or haunted two-by-fours were charged in connection with the incident. <laughs> Sometimes we give the devil way, way, way too much credit. Way too much importance. Uh, the, the, Jesus' death had nothing to do with paying Satan anything or paying the devil anything, in the same way that for hundreds of years, when they sacrificed those animals for the forgiveness of the sins of the priest and the people, it had nothing to do with paying back the devil. So the reason why Jesus died, I'm going to teach you three words really, really quickly, um, has to do with uh, a vicarious, a penal, substitutionary atonement. We learn these terms in, in theology and Bible college and teach these things. 
when we say vicarious, um, think, of the, think of the parent who lives vicariously through their child. So the parent wanted to be a soccer player and, you know, they broke their leg or whatever. They couldn't be a soccer player. They have a child and they make that child play soccer. And they, you know, go to the soccer pitch and they cheer and yell and scream and, you know, do embarrassing things, uh, kind of forcing their child to, you know, play soccer, like soccer. Maybe the kid doesn't even like it. What's going on? The parent is living vicariously through their child. Some of you parents, maybe you've seen this. and Maybe you've seen how weird parents behave with their children when they're in sports. Well, sometimes it's because they're trying to live vicariously through their children. When we talk about the vicarious nature of the death of Jesus, it is us living through his death. This is why Paul says that we die when Christ died. When we come to Christ, the old man dies and the new has come. Because his death on the cross, we live through that death as if it's us who should be dying on that cross, but it's him who dies in our place. That is what we mean when we say the word vicarious when we talk about the death of Jesus. It's a penalty that's being paid on the cross. So there is a penalty the scripture teaches from Old Testament to New Testament for sin. Now, people are very, very hard on God these days. And, um, you know, we accuse God of all kinds of things. And boy, I tell you, uh, I'm amazed at God's patience (laughs) and the accusations that he has to listen to over and over and over again. He listens to these accusations. Uh, We're very unfair to God because if we were God and we were holy, I mean holy in the sense of completely, eternally, all-powerfully holy. And uh, we had to deal with sin and evil and injustice. Um, We would probably just end the human race, wouldn't we? (laughs) We would probably just get it over with really, really quickly. I mean, God has has quite a lot of patience because he has to watch us do what we do. He has to watch our transgression and our sin. He has to watch us break his law over and over and over again. And he has to come up with a way for people to volitionally, willfully turn to him in repentance so that they may be forgiven. But you see, God is eternally holy. He's all-powerfully holy. So it's not just that God says, well, it's okay. I forgive you. He wouldn't be eternally holy if he did that. There would be a serious problem with his character and his nature unless there was an appropriate penalty for the transgression of his law. The appropriate penalty for the transgression of his law is death. This is why Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see? So that's, that's the predicament that God is in. and We get really upset with God, really angry with God, but if we were God, we'd be a lot harder on humanity than he is. And what God has done, therefore, in the person of Christ is to face your penalty and my penalty. Wow, that's, that's quite an example. So Paul says, you know, very rarely will someone die for somebody else. Though for a good person, someone might well die. But for sinners, 
for bad people, for reprobates and transgressors. And for those people, no one would die, right? But Christ has died for all of us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, paid the penalty. It's a penal uh, atonement for us, and he is our substitute. So it's in our place in the same way that those animals were a substitute for the sins of Israel and the people and the priest. So Jesus is our substitute. But one time, once and for all, he appears once. That's why Jesus died. So that's the vicarious penal substitutionary atonement. You all get 10 on 10 for listening, okay? But that's the reason. He didn't die to pay back Satan. Yes, he defeats the power of Satan over somebody's life. Uh, when they become a Christian, they can walk in freedom. Yes, that's true. But the first and foremost reason that Jesus dies is a vicarious penal substitutionary atonement. He's a whole lot more than a martyr. Um, that death was very, very specific, even as all of those sacrifices were specific. And we also, when we understand the past, we appreciate the present, we hope for the future. Uh, we don't dread the future. <laughs> we don't look at the future as something that is like, oh boy, what's going to happen next? You know, we got the pandemic of 2020, 2021. What's coming next? It's, it, maybe it's do doomsday is on the way, you know, and uh, oh boy, you know, maybe there's going to be another pandemic and maybe there's going to be this and maybe there's going to be that. And people, when they think that way, they have a sense of hopelessness a sense of dread, a sense of skepticism, uh, a negative view of the future. This is not what we have when we understand the past, when we understand where all of, all of this is coming from in the person of Jesus and the history behind it, and we understand the present then and the opportunity we have by grace to enter the most holy place. That is a relationship, a personal relationship with the living God without hindrance, without having to go through a priest, without having to go through a person. No, that's done. Now you go by grace, by faith, through the blood of Jesus. Amazing news. We hope for the future. So the end of the chapter here, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You say, I thought I was saved already. You are, but not fully. <laughs> You are in, a, in a, a kind of an incomplete sense. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Yes, you can approach God. Yes, you're going to heaven if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus. Yes, that's all true. But ultimate redemption has not yet taken place. Uh, that's why there's so many problems in the world. That's why you're getting older. That's why your body's getting older. That's why you still get sick from time to time. That's why these things still happen because the ultimate redemption of humanity and of this world has not yet happened. It will when Jesus returns. But that's supposed to bring you hope. That's not supposed to bring you dread. Even the verse, just as it's destined for man to die once and after that face judgment, you have nothing to fear 
when you die in Christ. Nothing to fear. In fact, you look forward in hope to that time when you walk through uh, the curtain and you pass to the other side. And for those in Christ, uh, uh, death in this world is actually a gift into entering the literal presence of God in eternity. So there's just so many lessons to be learned by this this French, this, this Quebecois word that's used so, so, so often. So much to learn, so much history. When we understand the past, we appreciate the present, and we long for, we hope for uh, the future. So on that, I'd like the, the uh, two guys to come, uh, Sean and Viano, if you guys can just come and play. And you play whatever you want and keep on playing. We'll keep it going, keep the stream going. Uh, as long as people are watching, they, they enjoy your music and your, your ministry today. Uh, but I want to pray for you today. I know there's a lot, there's a lot of heavy stuff in there, but maybe, maybe you you're grasp something that you didn't get before. You know, we talk about in church, Jesus died for our sins, Jesus died for our sins, and it becomes this almost robotic statement, and we don't really fully appreciate often what we're really saying and what we really have, and what we really are look, looking forward to. So Father, I pray for each person who's in this room, and uh, those who are watching online, those who will watch, those who will listen. Uh, Lord, um, wow, would you enable us to worship you? It's not just by singing, um, it's not just by being part of a church, but God, it's by submitting ourselves to you and just falling before you and saying, God, will you just take my life? Will you just have me? Will you just use me? Will you accept me into your family? And just by submission and just by giving ourselves to you, uh, Lord, we worship you. So I pray that, that people would submit everything that they have, God, all of our, our gifts and our talents and our abilities and our thoughts and our actions, uh, Lord, may we give all of ourselves over to you that you would do what you will with us, that you would use us for your purposes and not ours, for your will and not ours, and for your glory and not ours, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Lord bless you today. Uh, please feel free to stick around. Uh, when you walk around, you have to keep your masks on, of course. There's coffee and tea. I'll be at the front and would love to visit with you. God bless you. Have a great, great Sunday.